Grab a Bible. Where you're sitting, there's one within arm's reach. Open it up with me to Exodus chapter 17. You can find that on page 59. We're going to look through all of the text we just heard here, verse by verse. Going to jump over to a couple other places in the Old and the New Testament. Page 59, Exodus 17. I'm 42, and uh, I know it doesn't look that way because I'm bald and I have a bunch of gray hair over here, but I'm actually much younger than you think I am. Uh, It's a true story. And I've lived long enough to experience several seasons of my life that have felt like a wilderness. Can you remember your most recent one? You think back to what that was like. Maybe that's not in the past for you recently. Maybe it's in your present for you today. I think it's pretty normal to wonder, God, how much longer is this going to last? Because I'd like to get out of it as quickly as possible. And I'd like to ask something about those seasons of our life. Perhaps a contrarian question. What if... It is not the goal of God to get you out of that season as quickly as possible. What if instead it is the goal of God to leave you there as long as it takes? What would be good about the season of wilderness that you're in presently? Could there be something good? Because what's unique about the wilderness seasons of our life is I think they put us in a position to be uniquely poised to hear the word of God and to be comforted by his truth. I think there can be something actually good, as long or as short as it may be. What we find in Exodus chapter 17 is that God has led the children of Israel into the wilderness on purpose. And it is for their good. I think Exodus 17, there are at least three things. We're going to see only three here. First, the context where we find the problem that the Israelites are in. It's much deeper and much greater and much worse than the wilderness itself. Second, their cry, that is how they respond to their problem. They quarrel against God. And then third, we'll look at the response of God to their own response. So the context, the cry, and then thirdly, God's response to them. And I hope along the way, we're going to pull over a couple times, but especially at the end, and ask ourselves, What can God show us? What good can the wilderness be for us today? So first, the context. Hope you have your Bible open. Look at me, or look with me at your text. Uh, Verses one, first half of verse two, it says this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin, Looks like sin. We'll come back to that by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. All right. A couple of things that are important for us here. Uh, Where it says the whole congregation, the Israelite people who have left Egypt are not... A couple of hundred people like us in this congregation today, they're a 
couple of million people, two or three or four million people. For context, the metropolitan city of Denver has nearly three million people. And they're not in some small path here, like on this screen. They, they, they cover the width of the valley. They're in Rephidim, in the wilderness of Sin, it looks like in English, they're in the region of Mount Sinai, S-I-N-A-I, where they'll be in just a couple of chapters on Mount Sinai when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, chapter 19 and chapter 20, right after this. They're in a desert, and it's dry, and they are six weeks removed from perhaps the greatest miracles in the history of their people. They've seen God show his dominance over the Egyptian gods in each of the ten plagues. They've been rescued from slavery. They crossed over over the Red Sea on dry ground. How many weeks ago? Six weeks ago. You know what was six weeks ago? Basically, New Year's Eve. Can you remember what you did New Year's Eve? Maybe. <laughs> if you had crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground, you would remember what you did on New Year's Eve. In the chapter immediately before this, one more thing in the context here. People are hungry. They've cried out to Moses. Really, they're crying out through Moses to God. They say, give us something to eat. He gives them manna, bread on the ground every morning, and quail from heaven every day. Right before this. And so now, when we catch up to them in chapter 17, they're in a wilderness that is dry and they have nothing to drink. And God, remember they were led by the commandment of the Lord, it is God himself who has brought them to a place with no water. That is their problem. How do they react to their problem? Well, again, in verse two, we see, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Or why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Okay. They cry out against Moses. Their cry is really through Moses to God himself. And the word that we find here multiple times, here and again in verse 7, we'll look at that in just a moment, is the word quarrel. And this means much more in Hebrew than to whine or to complain or to be upset. The Hebrew word in quarrel can also mean to bring formal legal charges. Moses says to God, remember, they're almost ready to stone me. It's capital offense, gross negligence, and manslaughter. He says, you're not testing me, you're testing the Lord. Have you forgotten all that he's done for you over the last six weeks? Aren't you being a little dramatic? Do you think he's really here to kill you and your children and your livestock? Let's pull over here for a moment. Because I think there's a big difference between our questions and our quarrels. I think it's one thing to have questions. And they say, God, how long is this going to last? And what are you up to in this season of my life? 
And can you make it any shorter? And to ask those kinds of questions with an open heart. I think further for that matter, it's, it's very similar to complain as we are questioning God. In fact, the Psalms are filled with people who are complaining, who are saying, God, where are you? Show up, I need you. Those are some of my favorite Psalms. And it's possible to ask those kinds of questions and to bring to God those kinds of questions. Uh, by the way, he can bring, or he can take all those questions and he can take all those complaints. He's, it's one thing to ask those things. It's another thing to quarrel against him, not with an open heart, but with a hard heart. I said, God, what are you up to here? How could you do this to me? Do you see how good I've been? I deserve better than this. Who are you? Are you good and are you here? Do you see the difference? And what our text shows us is that in their quarrels, the attitude and the orientation of the heart of the children of Israel is the latter of these two. Take a look with me at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They're not questioning the ability of God. They're questioning the goodness of God, completely oblivious to the goodness of God in their history right before this, over the course of the last six weeks, and his presence among them in a cloud in the fire. You don't think that that can happen to you? That given enough time in the wilderness... Your questions can turn to quarrels and what may be an open heart right now can turn to a hard heart in the future. You, don't, you think you're immune to that, that that's just somebody else's problem? Hear the testimony of the scripture because this problem, this issue is woven throughout the Old and the New Testaments warnings throughout the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test, though they had seen my work. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our fathers all passed through the sea and ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You don't think that your wilderness can harden your heart? can happen to any of us in this room. Some of us are there right now. How do we avoid the same fate? So that our questions don't turn to quarrels. And so that our hearts stay open instead of hardened. Let's turn back to our text and see the way that 
Yahweh God responds to the way that they react. He says, I'll give them water. And if you've got your Bible, let's keep reading in verses 5 and 6. He says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and there you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God says, I will give them water to drink. How will he do so through these three things? Through the staff, his stand, and the strike. Let's look at each one. The staff that Moses takes is much more than simply something that he was using to walk through the wilderness on a hike, on a long journey. The staff that Moses takes is a sign of the power of God and the authority of God and the judgment of God against his enemies and against evil. And it's a callback to the first plague of all the ten plagues when Moses took the staff and he tapped the Nile River, the plague of blood, and the Nile River turned to blood. And for that matter, not just the water in the Nile River, but the water in all of the nation of Egypt turns to blood and all the fish in the water die and all the pots and all the pans and all the blood all the places where there was water are filled with blood. It says in the book of Exodus earlier before this that it stank so bad that the people could even come near it, much less drink it. And so when Moses hears God say, get out the staff, he's got to be thinking, uh-oh, here he goes again. The staff of power and authority and judgment. And he says, I will take my stand on the rock. Imagine what that might have looked like. Can we read this slowly enough to wonder? What form does he take as he stands on the rock? Is he in bodily form? He took on the form of a body, a physical body, when he wrestled with Jacob in the book of Genesis is he here again to wrestle with the people of Israel? Remember, Jacob's name is turned to Israel. Is he here to wrestle with them again? Is he here in the form of a cloud, the glory presence of God that led them through the wilderness? Will he be shrouded in this cloud or will he be in the form of fire? They're in the region of Horeb. It was in the region of Horeb in Exodus chapter 3 where God shows up and appears to Moses in a burning bush. What form will he appear when he says to Moses, I will take my stand upon the rock before you? The Hebrew text tells us something that we miss in English. This is a unique idiom, a unique grammatical construction that describes the appearance of a servant before his master to do what he asks. And note who stands as a servant before who. You see the reversal here. Normally, it's servants who stand before kings. But what we find here is the reverse. We find the king of kings, Yahweh himself, who stands before his people to serve them. 
we have with this, the staff, and he takes his stand upon the rock, and he commands Moses to strike the rock, and water flows from it. Can you imagine? Again, we can wonder here if we read this slowly enough to consider what it might have looked like. Can you imagine what the water flowing from the rock might have been? I mean, is it a drip? Is it a trickle? Is it perhaps, I would guess, a torrent? Remember how many millions of people this water from the rock has to feed? probably a raging river, a torrent of water that flows from this rock. And in order for the water to come out of the rock, Moses has to take the staff as God takes the stand and, and Moses strikes the stone with his staff. The Hebrew word here means more than just simply to tap. To strike the rock means to smash and to slay and to crush and do you see here that the staff of Moses that once brought death is now the staff of Moses that brings life and water from the rock have we seen this somewhere else 1400 years later God himself wanders into the wilderness Right of the Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. That tempted by the devil, he does the right thing in the right way, and throughout his life, he lived the life that you and I should have lived despite all of our complaining and arguing with one another and all of our quarreling with one another and with God himself. Where does the blow of the rod of God's justice belong? It belongs on the people of God. It belongs on you. But where does the blow of the justice of God land instead? It lands on him. Because on the cross, God himself is not on the rock, on the cross God is the rock. That struck with the rod of God's justice for you, he stands in the place of sinners, not to smite, but to be stricken. And here he stands in the place of sinners, not to strike, but to be smitten. Here he is, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for you. So I don't think it's any accident that in chapter 19 of John's gospel, he records that he was an eyewitness of the moment that a soldier took a spear and stuck it into the side of Jesus and pulled it out. And when he did, you know what, remember what flowed from the side of Jesus' blood, we'd expect, and water too. That separate at the moment of his death. This my friends, is the means through which God himself gives life and water to you. Uh, he says this, essentially. 
that I'll give you water from the most unlikely of places. It will come from myself, and I will give it to the most unlikely of people. And if you come to me with your thirst, the water that I give you will well up from within you, a spring of life welling to eternal life. These are the means through which he gives living water to you. Through the staff, the rod of God's justice that fell on Jesus, he takes his stand, not on the rock, but as the rock, and he takes his stand in your place to receive the strike that you and I deserve. It's the way our God, Yahweh himself, works. What good is any of that for us in our wilderness today? I mean, let's simply ask ourselves the same question, practically speaking, that I posed a few moments ago. What good can the wilderness be for you today? Because practically speaking, what's different than a place like a jungle that's loud and noisy and wet is that a, a desert is dry, and quiet, and still. And I'd argue this, that in our brokenness, in our weakness, in the wilderness, that it puts us in a position to be uniquely poised to hear the word and the promise of God that are your oasis in the wilderness. Two things, the providence of God and the presence of God. Because the providence of God means that he knows far more than you know, and he's able to do far more than you can do. Ephesians chapter 1 says that he can do far more than you can dream or imagine in your wilderness today. The women's basketball team at Texas Christian University won their first 14 games of the season this year. And they broke into the top 25. They were ranked number 23 when they beat BYU on December 30th, and that's when their season became a train wreck. Uh, they lost their next four games as their best players were injured, a couple of them season-ending injuries, and four games that they lost. The next two games after that, they lost by forfeit simply because they didn't have enough players to travel with. And so the coach of TCU decided to hold open tryouts for any student on campus who had, was a full-time student, had a physical, and had high school basketball experience. Now, one of those students, Piper Davis from Idaho, she took her team to the state championship. They won. She had said no to uh, scholarships at smaller universities to play basketball in order to go to TCU and study graphic design and business. Uh, so they won their first game after they uh, held open tryouts. They beat UCF, and they have lost every game since. <laughs> it could it be that what was not good for some one of their starters was good for Piper Davis, and she's doing far more than she could dream or imagine playing on a team that she never thought she'd play for. Could it be that if the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 are true, that God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that that may be for your good, your wilderness, there may be good in it, that may be good that is somebody else's good in your wilderness. 
who you may meet, you may not meet. You may know, you may not know. You may see, you may not see what he's up to in your wilderness. His providence means that he knows far more and he can do far more than you can dream or imagine. That's what we find. Will you open your heart to that promise? That he is good, whether that is good according to your terms or not, and it can be for your good, whether that is good according to your original terms or not. Will you open your heart to that word? The word of his providence. For that matter, will you open your heart to the word of his presence? That that, by that I mean this, that he is with you is way better than what he can do for you. That his presence is better than his provision. That's what Psalm 63 says. The psalmist looks to God and says, Oh God, you're my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Can you say that? Can you open your heart to that promise? It is one commentator who says this. It's not until God is all you have that you realize God is all that you need. That's probably easier to say when you have plenty. But it's still true whether you have plenty or are in want. It's not until God is all you have that you realize he is the one you truly need. And you may not have what you want, and it may not be when you want it, it may not be in the way that you want, and it may be a torrent, it may be really good and obvious, and you may be overflowing, and it may be a stream, it may be a trickle, it may be a drip, but he is with you in the wilderness, whether you can see him or not. He says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Will you open your heart to that word of promise that is for you? Let him lead you into the wilderness with an open heart and let the promises of his word be your oasis. And may you trust his providence and may you rest in his presence. Amen.